0: Section three, of Obermann. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Obermann by Etienne Pivert Senancour, translated by Arthur Edward Waite, eighteen forty-seven to nineteen forty-two. Biographical and critical introduction by a e wait part three how a man who was intellectually conspicuous for his period came to be taught of the spirit at the beginning of the nineteenth century and what are the lessons which he leaves us either directly or by inference cannot fail to be of interest and to elucidate these points it will be necessary to take a short survey of the letters of obermann their beauties and their defects designed to exhibit the views of their author at the period of that book on subjects of real importance there are at the beginning one or two critical points which for the sake of clearness had better be dealt with out of hand as at one or another stage notice must be taken of them i have indicated already that there is a good deal of waste substance in obermann and to defend this would be inexcusable to educated discernment and fairly impossible even for the least intelligent and discriminant of its admirers this waste substance may be written down authoritatively as those parts which were possibly intended to give an accent of realism to the correspondence. where there is a lighter vein in obermann there is by comparison at least a poorness which tends frequently to become conspicuous and in some occasional attempts at persiflage is not short of pitiable as for example the distinction between what is proved and what is certain in the forty-seventh letter why it has been thought advisable to retain all this laboured and weary trifling has also been indicated obermann is a work of continuity and it would be at the expense of the whole book if it were separated into detached essays isolated reflections or descriptive passages it would have been much easier and pleasanter to have cut out all that i have myself found vapid and tedious but such a personal feeling is not safe as a criterion and in this note-book of a specialist in self-analysis each of the occult fraternity to whom he makes appeal in his preface may be content to mark that which impresses them and leave what remains to the others the whole is useful as an event in the growth of a mind which at length found other supports escaping from the weariness of its own limitations and attaining something of heaven and light the reader must therefore deal with the work as a whole accepting what seems to him best over which i trust that he will be in agreement with me and confessing for the rest that there are a thousand things which he must be prepared to excuse in obermann which will be also those indicated by me if he is the reader for whom i have rendered it as to others who are beyond my care and knowledge there may be any number of the uninitiated who are incapable of initiation for whom vapidities and commonplaces declaimed from the height of vulgar thought may form excellent mental pabulum and who may find some food in senancour should the unalterable providence of books permit them to come across Obermann also if there should be any one at this day to whom the peculiar anti-christian standpoint of senancour may, may by chance appeal it is possible that he will take it to his heart of hearts let all of us however who aspire to be true sons of the doctrine and the light forgive senancour as best we can all that is opposed to this light his melancholy fantasies on the vanity of fleeting enjoyments less for their tincture of pessimism than because of their commonplace together with his halting eloquence in a hundred natural descriptions and the final impenitence of sentiment which can tolerate in the ninetieth letter a suggestion of dietary for the disorders of the soul another stricture which must i think be passed upon obermann is that after the epoch of the sorcerers the grimoire of honorius and the dominion of abracadabra he was perhaps among the first genuine apostles of mere words his pages are often a running stream of sound not always too attractive in its melody voicing too often the vaguest quality of sense using more than is endurable the terminology of the nebulous and unsignificant constructions in a word without tangible meaning a mere occasional dullness is of course to be expected in such letters and is therefore tolerable many passages are inapplicable to the modern standpoint many ideas are exploded and many disquisitions could have been of very little account even at the period when they were written as for example in the fifty-second letter the discourse on the influence of climates in the modification of peoples but these things are not worse or more dry than many pages of amiel or marie bakershef which find favour to-day or than the journal of a self-observer by had its readers and we may presume its admirers seeing that this too was translated in a generation that has passed occasionally it may be questioned whether my apology for an unselected translation can be held to cover certain sections whether in the seventy-second letter there can be really an excuse for the egregious conversation with a nameless officer who ordered but in what way does not appear a life which seems to have been quite trivial with a view to an enjoyment but of what also fails to transpire unaccompanied by a weariness which should have at least overcome his listener but obermann was so dull and so weary that it did not increase his dullness or add to his exhaustion and the same doubt is raised by the fifty-second letter which offers a depressing account of a depressing journey undertaken by a disillusioned idler and a tiresome young man of promise who does not like paris but permits himself to perambulate its environs and yet as a redeeming feature we may note a certain touch of nature and a certain measure of insight into character saving clauses of this kind might be introduced at many points of a criticism which would otherwise be severe not infrequently when dealing even with the most unpromising materials and in none too promising a manner a sudden light breaks forth and illuminates the whole in letter twenty one there is an unspeakable disquisition upon beauty beauty as it was conceived of all periods in the universe by that hopeless period which succeeded diderot inhibited as it was from every grace and sacrament while obermann himself when he intellectualized was no less in excommunication and under anathema but even here amidst barren discourse without unction a sudden inspiration comes upon him he casts aside all profitless distinctions and identifies for a moment the sentiment of beauty with the perception of the infinite in some cases we get help of a certain sort which was obviously undesigned by the author as for example in the second fragment appended to letter thirty five obermann discoursing on ethics is obermann in a moist mist of unilluminated depression he is never more commonplace than when he is crying down the commonplace conventions of that which passed for wisdom at the cold daybreak of the nineteenth century and yet he helps us to recognise the futility of that wisdom less on account of its conventions than its essential hollowness we have touched hitherto only upon one side of the field of criticism which is opened out by obermann we have dealt with that which is nugatory or unimportant we have now to consider the work as a whole and make also some reference to certain specific points which are philosophically of sufficient importance or suggestively of sufficient interest to make it worth while to indicate the particular errors of the writer regarding the letters as a whole matthew arnold is if i remember the only critic of obermann who points out that it is in the main a work of the sentimental school as such it connects not only with the confessions of rousseau with the nouvelle Eloise very markedly with the sorrows of werther in a lesser degree with René, attila and the indian cottage but also with more than one prototype of the sentimental school in england with mackenzie and his man of feeling and it must be added with mrs radcliffe even with the romance of the forest and the mysteries of udolpho the statement has an air of absurdity for the delineation of the states of the soul has at first sight no common ground for comparison with the shrines of gothic superstition the ruined abbeys and the mountain fortresses of this school of romance and still less if possible with its peculiar management of mysteries but so far as obermann is a work of feeling it recalls and that pointedly the characteristic quality of feeling which is found in the sentimental school and especially in mrs radcliffe let any one compare the temperament which manifests in the sixth letter with the disposition of valancourt in the mysteries of udolpho and generally the pleasing melancholy which was the chief delight of obermann with the same favourite condition as it is described times out of number in connection with the heroines of mrs radcliffe and they will see that it is the same temperament minus the religious sentiment elementary as it was which inspired the vapid and tiresome creations of one who was once described and accepted as a mighty magician bred and nourished by the florentine muses amidst all the dreariness of enchantment obermann is sufficiently many-sided to make any summary account of it not so much difficult as impossible this is partly but not fully to be accounted for by the fact that it is a book of moods many moods but with one only that is really dominant and this is the mood of weariness for many persons therefore its handiest description would be that it is the diary of an annuier but this is not at all adequate for in the first place it never entered into the heart of the ordinary annuier to conceive the weariness of obermann nor secondly in the midst of that weariness to conceive the thoughts of obermann he is rather like an outworn pilgrim of the ages who at length brought face to face with eternity exclaims is this all yet he is in no sense as a god who has grown weary for of many trifles there are some which tire him and yet some which divert him he was so alive to minute inconveniences and small disappointments that he thought it worth while to devote a letter to the necessity of a boat on lake Chessel for the benefit of the invalids at the baths and for his own pleasure letter fifty seven others will regard themselves as having grasped the key to the entire work when they have become satisfied that the spleen the exhaustion the pessimism the disappointment of obermann were all consequent on the fact that he was out of employment and that he carried through the waste places of the immortal soul the burden of his idleness emblazoned with the legend of the mendicant mechanic we've got no work to do i will not deny that the inmost character of obermann might be open to him who could explain precisely why he enjoyed the slow wheeling of a barrel laden with grapes and yet withered under the tardiness and postponements of the law in a suit the issue of which did not interest however much it might concern him but though want of some defined end of a practical kind in life was from time to time a matter of regret with obermann or more correctly of speculation as to whether it might have acted as an anodyne he was too shrewd an observer to be deceived by the colourable imitations and substitutes which are offered by the world in place of the one thing needful we may note in this connection the practical wisdom at the close of the seventy-sixth letter wherein he felicitates himself upon the possession of a moderate sufficiency by which he could live without ostentation and affirms that an independent fortune is one of the great means of happiness and even of wisdom a sane view in comparison with which the childish philosophy of bread-winning for its own sake is not only childish but mischievous for myself i have already indicated that obermann is the experience amidst finite things of a consciousness that has been awakened to the things that are infinite and eternal but i have suggested it as a palmary point of great importance not as an exhaustive description he tells us letter three that he was in search of other manners and a new nature but i think personally that he sought without knowing it the perfect life of the transcendental world in many respects obermann is a book of the lamentations of the soul on a journey from the centre while it knows well that its rest remains at the centre there are yet those who will describe obermann because he does so himself practically as a hermit hungry for companionship especially for the sight the society the intimacy of a true friend but failing that grasping at the chance of securing the friend of that true friend who also and more especially is the brother of a woman whom he has loved by many subtle hints many unintended and incomplete revelations many indirect openings and insights we discern how much this love and the disappointment which ensued upon it have contributed not merely to his disenchantment but to his permanent loss in life his intellectual enervation and the constriction of all his destiny but although it is obvious that obermann like the french mystic of a generation before to whom i shall have occasion to recur very obviously and earnestly desired even while he misdoubted the married state yet the book is not the product of the dreams and the longings of a celibate and in this connection we should remember firstly that senancour himself had been married and secondly that no general description of obermann which would not be true psychologically as regards senancour can be taken to represent it adequately there is yet one other description and one explanation which is not less entitled to our respect because we are most of us unable to accept it at least as the whole truth and this is the explanation of the catholic who will discern in obermann the history of a soul which has gone utterly astray because it has broken from the anchor of the faith I am describing this point of view somewhat conventionally, so as to be true to the spirit of the criticism, which invariably finds its expression in a convention. The case is as strong as the assumption upon which it rests, and it is only by realizing that it gives expression to but a part of the truth that it is possible to set it aside otherwise it puts a circle about the entire experience of obermann and accounts for it page after page and line by line the assumption is that pious and solicitous parents reared him in the true church and designed him for the highest vocation which can be offered within the pale of its union but that at the age when he should have acted upon the choice he had already unsettled his mind otherwise inexperienced and ill-equipped by the desultory reading of current infidel literature that he had conceived in consequence a strong aversion from the life of sanctity that he broke all ties to escape from it and that once having corrupted his faith he was henceforth unstable restless unprofitable to himself and the world the skilled hand could extract passage after passage from obermann as proof positive that he suffered simply the common misery and daily experience of the soul apart from god which at the same time has once known the light and has therefore no excuse for deserting it if this book therefore should fall into the hands of convinced catholics it cannot fail to offer them a signal instance for the fortification of their faith and the explanation for them will be at once complete and unchallengeable within its own lines there are many of us who will i trust be disposed to regard it as entirely excellent indeed speaking for the school which i represent it only requires to be restated in the terms of universal religion to expose the whole truth obermann and senancour who for the purposes of this portion of our study was also obermann had the misfortune not only as we have seen to be conscious of the infinite and the eternal but to be conscious that he was apart from both he was separated by disposition through waywardness fickleness and the many moods of sentimentalism intellectually through an inadequate and narrow naturalism born of trumpery philosophical reading combined with rudimentary observation and a bourgeois outlook morally by an arrest in his development which places him in a lower groove of vulgarity and conventionalism than the ethics of the street preacher by education through mere crassness and an eye for utility by habit chiefly through the continual regard of vital matters in the light of their meanest part all these grounds of unhappy experience severally and collectively instilled into him their bitter lessons his disposition led him to recognise an ingrained incapacity, his intellectual outlook to regard life as abortive, his moral feelings to look doubtfully at the higher sentiments, and the aspirations which are above evidence. His habits, his moods, his manners, to have no eye for beauty, truth, or sincerity in the presence of a defect, not so much because of the deficiency which it indicated, but because he happened to dislike it we might collect almost by random score upon score of cases in point as to the mischance and miscarriage of his thoughts owing to these limitations of his nature observe him in letter eighty one discoursing as a natural philosopher, as a kind of cosmologist at large, illustrating his absolute inability to understand the fundamental problems of philosophy and creating an insoluble difficulty where there is no ground for doubt and no possibility of two educated views. The late creation of the universe, in other words, neither is nor can be an impediment to the human mind if we grant the fact of creation, nor yet if we deny that fact in eternity there is neither late nor early nor is it true that the universe subsists for a time only it subsists has subsisted and will subsist for all time which is simply the limit of the universe as regards duration and outside it there is no time so much for obermann figuring as a speculative philosopher as regards some other problems of the relations between god and man their best commentary is that the writer changed his views but we have said that he had also his ethics and a specimen which will serve for the whole occurs in letter forty four where he rails against those who would deny a true sanction to morality apart from religion and yet in his turn is disposed to deny that or rather it has never struck him to inquire whether there is a sanction for the aspirations of the soul apart from conventional doctrine to suggest that such doctrine is only an accident of the soul's aspiration would have been to him a source of astonishment though possibly also to his age which had awakened sourly from the dream of the french revolution and for the moment loathed all that was blessed because it was itself unblest though less apparent and in some sense indeed concealed a similar spirit is at the root of the lamentations which prompt such letters as the thirty-ninth to which the true answer would be that in the last resource man makes his own sacraments he chooses those which shall be to him the outward sign of an inward grace and he makes them void at will yet the sacraments are always in the world always ministering and always efficacious and now as regards the habit and the bias of his thought to take one instance out of many in letter forty four obermann forgets that faith in the first resource is an act of the will and hence pascal was neither absurd nor puerile for it is admitted that he would have been right as regards conduct but conduct is also a question of resolution like faith but in a narrower measure because it depends more upon secondary considerations it is a question of the determination to take a certain road which experience has shown to be the right road and it is open to any one to prove it in their own persons and souls on the one condition that they choose to do so wise or great we have all of us indifferently the eternal justice to reckon with after centuries of discussion it remains impregnably certain that the consideration of eternity is the true sanction of morals because it is that consideration which alone makes anything of any consequence it imparts the one real and enduring vital import it has been sometimes said that this is a mean view but life itself is meanness apart from the motive of eternity i have mentioned these few instances out of many others which could be cited to illustrate the limitations of obermann in the presence of the real problems of existence as firstly questions of what Balms would term fundamental philosophy and secondly the grounds of morality or alternatively the basis of faith it is suggested by m le valois that in creating obermann senancour intended to substitute for the man of his period narrow in individuality and particular in sentiment some ideal yet actual being independent of circumstances but capable of being affected by these daring much and yet knowing how to govern his boldness possessing exalted faculties the germ of solid moral qualities ardent sensibility wide sympathy a curiosity of knowledge assisted by unusual powers of contemplation the desire of the permanent the aspiration after devotion but all combined with sincerity disinterest simplicity and a singular passion for retirement i do not think that this design is represented by the result as we possess it nor does it seem to me more satisfactory as a description than some of those which we have already agreed to set aside as inadequate m le valois has been himself at the pains of showing us and i think quite successfully from the first edition of the reveillerie that some at least of the sensations and the personal ideas of senancour enter into obermann i believe that it would be possible to take the whole of his literary work and to demonstrate by its analysis that the psychology of obermann was the psychology of senancour at the period when that work was written and that as already suggested he simply circumstanced his hero within the lines by which he would himself have wished to be environed there can be little doubt that he regretted his hasty marriage and obermann is therefore a bachelor he regretted deeply and reasonably the loss of his inheritance and he makes obermann moderately easy as regards financial matters he no doubt detested his enforced existence in paris and he gives obermann all the world of mountains nor is this all so great to him was the privation of his poverty that he threatens his hero therewith so much did he detest paris that his hero for a period is forced to share his misery as regards the inner life the thoughts the aspirations the convictions and the burden of misfortunes they are too real in obermann for it to be worth insisting upon that they are other than the thoughts aspirations convictions and burdens of senancour and the explanation and description of obermann is that he wrote it because it was his own nature that he was depicting if one more proof is wanting we may find it right to our hand in the distaste that he felt for it very soon after its publication his anxiety that it should be forgotten above all by himself his anxiety to suppress it overcome at length after many years only with difficulty and only at a period when he was removed from it at a sufficient distance to be able to regard it at least to some extent as a document and not as a confession the details of which annoyed and even harrowed him i do not doubt that most of my readers will be able from their own experience to appreciate this point fully we have all of us at some time and in some way laid bare our inmost selves and have shuddered at it subsequently not at all because of what was revealed but at the fact of the revelation and we have invariably i think thenceforward sought to shut out the fact from ourselves rather even than from others until in the course of time we have ourselves so changed that it has ceased to grate upon us well then senancour wrote himself out at full length as he was at the period of obermann he believed in no god unless law order and the fatality of both may after some obscure fashion have assumed in his mind something of the conception of the deity and god is never once mentioned in obermann he despised all official religion and obermann speaks only with disdain of the dirty monk and the ascetic who is half a rogue he thought that the only hope for man was by some such return to nature as was dreamed by rousseau and this belief is expressed not less fully in obermann than in the reveries on the primitive nature of man which are explicitly devoted to the subject finally he did not believe in immortality and this consolation is therefore denied his hero but as i have mentioned so frequently already the infinite and eternal were about him even as they were within him excluded as he was from all the grace of their ministry he was conscious of their presence their appeal and their power and because he could not respond to these they overwhelmed him and this excommunication this consciousness this weight are all in obermann they are its sorrow its greatness its sublimity they are its title to consideration to place and permanence they are what the boulevards did not dream of at the beginning of the nineteenth century they are that which separates obermann from the daily trade of senancour by which he bought bread for his children they are separated by a distinction of kind and not of degree even as the panis weus et vitalis is distinguished from the bread by which men die they are in fine the qualities by which obermann has persisted after the lapse of a hundred years and by which i feel justified in offering it to english readers after all this lapse of time even to the twentieth century what did this consciousness under such conditions produce in senancour what else was it possible for it to beget but melancholy and weariness intense melancholy and unnatural weariness in a word the melancholy and the pessimism of obermann and the weariness ever described but always exceeding description which recurs on every page of obermann end of section three